Welcome to Primary Care Today on ReachMD. I'm your host, Dr. Brian McDonough, and today joining me is Dr. Michael Stierstorfer. We're going to talk a little bit about irritable bowel syndrome, what causes it, how do you deal with it, what are some of the latest theories, and you may be interested that I'm interviewing a dermatologist about it, and you're probably thinking, what the heck does a dermatologist know about irritable bowel, unless maybe they're suffering from it themselves, but there's actually a lot more to it, and I know, Mike, you, you have gone along a path to get your understanding of it and, and what you're doing as far as approaching it. Tell me a little bit about it. I have, Brian, and if you uh, would have thought I'd be talking to you about this 25 years ago when graduating from medical school or a few years later when finishing my dermatology residency, I would have never believed it. As fate would have it, I actually did develop symptoms of irritable bowel syndrome about seven years ago and uh, lived with them for about 50% of the time for a year not knowing what was causing it. I had a big workup, didn't really find anything. Just concluded I had IBS, and there wasn't a whole lot uh, offered for it. Then, by chance, within about a week, I ate two Indian dinners, and both times I flared up really badly with the same sort of symptoms. So at that point, I was convinced it had to be something I was eating, despite not having been able to identify specific foods prior to that. So I uh, thought a little more about it, and uh, eating Indian foods only in general about once a month, I thought, what, what else could be in this food that I'm eating on a regular basis? And the food I thought about was garlic because it's in everything we eat. Uh, I stopped garlic, and I was fine, and that was the end of my symptoms. So this was at age 48, and at that point I thought, well, this is pretty unusual. Did I just all of a sudden become intolerant to garlic? Or did I become allergic to garlic? And as you know, you can become allergic to something at any point in your life with repeated exposure. So I thought more likely it was an allergy. Uh, and I began to think, well, what kind of allergy could this be? So I first did a RAST blood test to garlic, thinking maybe it's an IgE-mediated problem. Uh, the RAST test was negative. Then as a dermatologist, we often uh, use a uh, test called a patch test to evaluate people with eczema. And I thought, well, let me patch test myself to garlic. And lo and behold, I have a positive patch test to garlic or a type 4 skin reaction to garlic. So uh, at that point, my thought was likely the same type of reaction occurring in my skin from the patch test is occurring in my gastrointestinal tract uh, when I would eat garlic and causing the inflammation that would affect the motility that would cause the IBS symptoms. And in doing further research, I learned that uh, there actually is inflammation observed in the intestine in people with IBS. As you know, for years it's been felt that IBS is a functional disorder. There's nothing physically wrong, but in probably the last 10 years or so, there's quite a bit of evidence that there is inflammation in the GI tract, but the cause of the inflammation has been unknown. So that's what got me uh, interested, and I could tell you more about how we... Um, validated this uh, concept. So you get to this point, and obviously you're curious about your own self, and you, you're smart, you, you did some research, you, you did your own testing, and you, you came up with this um, you know, hypothesis, and you, and you try to validate it more. What do you do with this information now? Like, you, at least you know in your life, hey, I'll, I'll avoid garlic, but, but how about for others, you know, for people listening in the program, how could this potentially impact patients of our listeners to primary care today? So I uh, thought uh, well, this, is this unique to me, or is this something that other people experiencing these same symptoms were, was happening to them? So I thought, well, maybe 
foods that are known to cause type 4 skin allergies are causing the same type of GI symptoms in other people with IBS. So we um, developed a study that we performed in our office. We got IRB approval. We recruited patients with IBS or IBS-like symptoms from our dermatology practice, and we uh, did patch testing on them to 40 foods, all foods that are known to cause type 4 skin allergies, which are typically different than the foods that are known to cause type 1 allergies. And uh, in all, we tested 51 patients, and we wound up helping 14 of the 51 patients, or about 27%, testing to 40 foods. We reported this in the Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology in the March 2013 issue and uh, have uh, done further work since then. But that study, to me, convinced me that what was going on with me was going on with a lot of other people who were walking around carrying a diagnosis of IBS uh, while really it's not IBS, which by definition means causes unknown, and these people, it's a type 4 uh, food allergy. And in type 4, that's usually the skin patch testing you use for things like poison ivy, those types of things that hadn't been used for irritable bowel, right? Exactly. It's never been looked at before for irritable bowel syndrome. Uh, it is a type 4, as you mentioned, is like poison ivy is the most common example that people know about. In my research, I, I, just in my, for my own education, I learned that type 1 allergy testing really is felt not to be helpful in the evaluation of IBS. There was a large consensus report from the National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Diseases in 2010 on all aspects of food allergy, and the conclusion was that type 1 allergy testing in general is not helpful for evaluation of IBS. Uh, to my surprise, type 4 testing has never before been investigated for, for IBS. And you're looking at a big problem. I mean, it's estimated that about one out of 10 people in Western countries carry a diagnosis of irritable bowel syndrome. And I know for some cases it's that so-called wastebasket diagnosis, but if you're the person suffering from it, it's not a wastebasket diagnosis. It's impacting your life every day. That's exactly right. It's it's very prevalent disease. The estimates are 10 to 15% in the U.S. In some countries, uh, even more. I think I saw a statistic in Brazil, they say over 40%. So, and I can tell you from my own experience, it is no fun walking around thinking about your stomach all the time. Right. Uh, you know, it wasn't always severe, but you always had your stomach on your mind. For me, 50% of the time. So it's a, it does really impact a lot of people and affects, um, you know, the economy in a big way and healthcare costs. Uh, billions and billions of dollars are spent every year on uh, the healthcare uh, involved with these people. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Primary Care Today on ReachMD. I'm Dr. Brian McDonough. I'm speaking with Dr. Michael Steerstorfer. He's a dermatologist, and we're talking about irritable bowel syndrome. And if you're just tuning in, um, it's a very interesting concept. It's something that you've tested clearly. Uh, you, you've done it the right way. I mean, you, you got a well-designed study. You had a lot of people in it. You followed them. You, you tracked it. What are the types of foods? You mentioned garlic, but what are some of the common foods you see uh, where people are having uh, the, the, the irritable bowel triggered? It's interesting. We, we have a whole panel of uh, allergens now that we test to. Now in, in our office, in our center, we test to 120 type 4 food allergens. And most of the foods that we've gotten are uh, from our textbook in uh, contact dermatitis. There are chapters in our contact dermatitis textbook in dermatology that uh, list all the foods that are known to cause this type 4 reaction. So most of the foods are uh, from that textbook. 
I worked with some food scientists at Penn State to help con uh, determine forms of vegetables, for example, that uh, remain allergenic. Because in my study, we tested the fresh vegetables, but uh, I thought that was pretty impractical if this was going to be a test that was widely available. So we determined that freeze-dried vegetables maintain their allergenicity. So um, we developed a panel of these allergens. Uh, we have 120 now. Some of them are commercially available in Canada and from Germany, and about half of, of them are foods that we've gotten the raw ingredients and have had them compounded in standard formulations by compounding pharmacists to use. So getting back to your question, um, garlic actually was the number one allergen in my study. About, uh, I think, half of the people of the 14, it was actually garlic that was causing the problem. But it's a whole host of other things. We test all kinds of things, fresh vegetables or freeze-dried vegetables. We test the preservatives, flavorings, binders, thickeners, emulsifiers. Um, some other examples that we've recently uh, identified and have helped people with have been cinnamon, uh, benzoyl peroxide, which is used to bleach flour, citric acid, which is a preservative, dodecylgallate is another preservative, limonene, which is in citrus. So a whole host of foods. Uh, of the 120 that we're testing, I think probably about 20 of them we've found to be causing uh, the problem in specific people, but I think any of the 120 are really candidates. You know, it's interesting. You mentioned Penn State, and I actually know of what you speak. I have a daughter in the School of Health and Human Development. I will tell you, their, their nutrition department um, does some amazing work, and they really, uh, the dietitians and the people there are doing some serious studies. So getting them on board was probably very smart on your part because they have a lot of the ability to look at a lot of these things and help you out, too, I'm sure. They were a huge help to me. The food science department at Penn State is one of the top uh, university food science departments in the country, and they were extremely willing to help. I, I'm forever grateful for the work that they did. When you were talking about these different things for uh, physicians in our audience, is there a website or is there a way they can find more out about this? Because obviously, I'm sure for most people, this is a new concept to them, and I know, I'm also sure we deal with the many patients who have irritable bowel, and to come up with some other potential thoughts for our patients would be great. Uh, yes, there are. We have a website for our centers. Uh, it's, it's called ibsfoodallergy.com, uh, www.ibsfoodallergy.com. Uh, also, we have a YouTube video entitled Food Patch Testing for Irritable Bowel Syndrome, where I um, review uh, what I've uh, hypothesized, and we actually show how the patch testing is done. There are also uh, nice pictures on our website, too, of how exactly the patch testing is done, the type of reactions that we look for. Now, have you worked with allergists and others in presenting your information or, or talked to other groups about it, and how's it been accepted? I uh, went back to our gastroenterology department at Temple, where uh, you and I both graduate from medical school, and presented it to them at one of their grand rounds, and they actually loved uh, the idea and uh, were interested in potentially doing a validation study with me. I'm still collecting data. I have IRB approval uh, for a questionnaire that we give to patients who I, we identify type 4 allergies, and we have them avoid the foods for a month and then send back the questionnaire. So we're, collect, we're continuing to collect data, and I'm hoping to get a lot bigger numbers uh, to do a more of a formal validation type report. And I'm actually looking at a little book, actually, it's quite interesting, You have where you actually tell people you may not have irritable bowel syndrome, and you talk about the introduction to this whole concept. So you, you've obviously made it a very important part 
of your practice, which I would think is a a big change from um, just dermatology and the issues there. Uh, Do you continue working in both areas? Yes, I do. I still uh, mostly do general medical dermatology. uh, My practice is in suburban Philadelphia, uh, and we do the patch testing. Uh, When people ask for it, we promote it in our office and recently done some promotions for a new center we've started in Center City, Philadelphia. And yes, I did uh, write this book based on my experience and the state of the art of what we're doing now. It, it is available on Amazon, so it's another way for people to uh, get information about it. It's called You May Not Have Irritable Bowel Syndrome, an introduction to allergic contact enteritis and the food allergies that cause it. That's what I've named this condition, allergic contact enteritis, or ACE, or ACE for short. And when you do this and you talk about it, obviously, I'm sure there, there's interest and people want to know about it. Do you think there's a lot of allergy-mediated things that we're just at the tip of the iceberg with when it comes to our own health and how it affects different organ systems in our body? I think that's probably true. You know, I'm really not an allergist, and I, I'm certainly not a gastroenterologist, but uh, I'm convinced that this is one example of what looks to me like a definite uh, allergic pathophysiology to a common disease that previously was uh, really poorly understood. And I'm not saying that everybody with IBS has this type 4 allergy, but uh, in our current testing, we're testing with 120 foods. We're helping about 30% of the people we're testing, and we're actually curing another 20% with the food avoidance. So I think you're right. I think we're at the tip of the iceberg, and this is just one example of probably many in medicine that just haven't yet been completely worked out. I think you're also doing something that a lot of people in our audience are interested in. If you're in one area of healthcare, the exciting thing is you can actually expand and follow, in a sense, your dreams or your research or your curiosity. It isn't even the area, as you said, that you even started out studying. It's been very gratifying for me, and uh, just doing something new after many, many years in general dermatology has made things uh, more interesting. I always was interested in internal medicine prior to uh, developing an interest in dermatology. So this sort of, uh, to me, is a very gratifying way to contribute to the field of medicine in general. You know, really, it was just a matter of following my nose. It was all common sense. There was, I didn't come up with some brilliant epiphany, just based on my experience. And I think a good message would be, in any field that you're working in, if you just observe closely the things you're seeing, you may see something in a different way that no one's ever quite seen before, and you should pursue that. Well, Dr. Mike Stierstorfer, I want to thank you for taking the time to join us. I'm Dr. Brian McDonough. If you missed any of this discussion, please visit reachmd.com slash primary care today. You can download the podcast. You can learn more about the series. I want to thank you for listening. Again, Mike, I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much.